Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushable. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for August 16, 2020. First, a couple of events that are coming up very soon. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have a low vision support call on Wednesday, August 19, from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Then, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites everyone to a call featuring the Blind Shell phone on Friday, August 21. There will be a Kentucky Derby party on September 4 from 7.30 to 9 p.m. The dial-in number for all of these calls on the Zoom line is 669-900-6833 and the code is 862-9889-6972. For more information about KCB activities and other activities as well, contact us at 502-895-4598. We like to bring you articles from around the Internet several times within a two or three month period of time and we haven't done that for a while so here are some articles that you might find of interest. First of all we're going to have a couple of articles on page one right here on this page which are about Braille. The first is an article from the NLS News Magazine about the number of Braille readers that exist within the library system today and the second article is an announcement about the new Braille Legos. On page two, you'll find articles about the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. First of all, an article about receiving help and assistance, whether you want it or not, from the perspective of an individual living in Uruguay. There's an article where Kim Charlson and former Senator Tom Harkin are talking about the ADA where it's been and where it needs to go. Then, an article from Forbes magazine, Five Accessibility Fails. On page three are two fun articles. The first is about a police dog rescuing a mother and baby during the dog's first day on the job. And the second is a really fun article about blind people taking over the world. Now, here are the first two articles about Braille. Crime Classic Series debuts with eBraille print editions by Mark Lehman. This article is from News, April June 2020, Volume 52, Number 2, published by the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Disabled. Many of the 5,000 or so books that NLS produces in audio and Braille each year our current bestsellers or other recent titles. But in the basement studio at the NLS building on Taylor Street Northwest in March, Laura Generelli was behind the microphone narrating a book published in 1897, That Affair Next Door by Anna Catherine Green. It was the first book in the Library of Congress Crime Classics series, a collaboration between the library and Poisoned Pen Press an imprint of source books based in Scottsdale, Arizona. The Crime Classics edition of That Affair Next Door was published on April 7 in print and available the same day in electronic braille on BARD, 
NLS's Braille and Audio Reading Download website. Thanks to a cooperative effort among NLS, the library's publishing office, and sourcebooks. The audio version that Generelli was narrating and the hard copy Braille edition were intended for simultaneous release, but were delayed by work disruptions related to the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Crime fiction, mysteries, and suspense stories are very popular with our patrons, so we knew they would be eager to read these books in accessible formats, said Alice O'Reilly of the NLS Materials Development Division. She worked with Becky Brassington Clark, director of the National Library Service Publishing Office, to make sure that NLS Studio got the full text of that affair next door once plans for the series were announced so it could produce a recording. Besides the original text, the Crime Classics edition includes features such as an introduction by Leslie S. Klinger, winner of the Edgar Award for Fact Crime Writing and Discussion Questions. The NLS Collection Development section lined up production of the book in Braille and on digital cartridge, the audio format used by patrons who prefer to receive books in the mail from their NLS-affiliated libraries. NLS Director Karen Kenninger called the collaboration on the project a big win all around. The Library of Congress, she said, is committed to being a library for all people, and accessibility is a big part of that. This will allow our patrons to enjoy that affair next door and future books in the Crime Classics series much sooner than if we followed the usual route to producing them in Braille and audio. NLS distributes more than 20 million Braille and audio books, magazines, and music instruction and appreciation materials to its patrons every year. Over the past 40 years, Generelli has narrated more than 1,000 books for NLS while pursuing a career as a stage actor and director. But that affair next door posed some unique challenges. Quote, contemporary writers often favor shorter sentences and more casual language, she said. A writer like Anna Catherine Green, especially since this particular book, is written in the first person by an upper-class woman of a certain age and temperament, uses long sentences with many subordinate clauses and multi-syllable words that we just don't use frequently anymore. She added, however, that the challenge allowed her to test her ability to navigate the twists and turns of a sentence as it unfolds without crashing, which is what we call it in the studio when you trip over your tongue and have to stop. That Affair Next Door introduced readers to Miss Amelia Butterworth, an inquisitive single woman who becomes involved in a murder investigation after the woman next door turns up dead. She was the first woman detective to appear in a series, long preceding Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Quote, I found the plot to be really compelling, Generelli said. It kept me guessing virtually to the last page. I can see why Green was an influence on better-known mystery writers who came after her. The next Crime Classics title, which came out in print in June, 
is the rat began to gnaw the rope. 1943 by C.W. Grafton, father of best-selling detective novelist Sue Grafton. Titles in this series are drawn from the library's collection of hard-to-find and out-of-print books. Notably, Poisoned Pen Press President Robert Rosenwald has a family connection to the Library of Congress. His grandfather, Lessing J. Rosenwald, former chairman of Sears Roebuck & Company, donated his personal collection of 2,653 rare books to the Library of Congress, and there's a room named for him in the Rare Books and Special Collections Division. The caption with the article is, Narrator Laura Generelli works on the recording of That Affair Next Door in the NLS studio before the building was closed in March. Posted on ACB Leadership on August 7, 2020, is the article, Lego is launching Braille bricks for students across the U.S. This is from CNN.com. New York, New York. Lego is launching a line of Braille bricks. The Lego Foundation designed and created a line of bricks molded with studs that correspond to numbers and letters in the Braille alphabet. The Foundation is sending the blocks free of charge to school districts across the United States, according to a press release from American Printing House, a nonprofit that promotes independent living for people who are blind and visually impaired. For schools that won't be reopening this fall, the Lego Foundation is sending the Braille bricks to districts where blind or visually impaired students are registered in the hopes that teachers and administrators can send them to students' homes. While teachers continue to navigate uncharted territory, quote, they have some options, an APH spokesperson said to CNN Business. They could send a kit to students at home and do activities over Zoom or a similar platform. If they have in-person classes, they could supply each student with their own kit for now. We couldn't be more excited to be working with LEGO to distribute an incredible tool to help introduce students to Braille, APH President Craig Metter said. Reading Braille means literacy that connects students to lifelong learning and opportunity. End of quote. The Braille bricks are the latest in a series of new offerings from LEGO. In July, the company announced that it was launching a classic Nintendo Entertainment System made of Legos. The company also debuted a new line of Lego art featuring Marilyn Monroe, The Beatles, Star Wars, and Iron Man. Page 2 this article was posted on ACB Leadership on Wednesday, August 12, by Kelly Gask. It's entitled, I'm a Blind Woman. Here's how COVID-19 has changed the way I ask for help. It was originally published in HuffPost.com. Crossing the street has always been an odyssey for me. I've been totally blind since birth, so the only thing that allows me to get my bearings in this situation are the sounds of vehicles. But with the coronavirus pandemic and the lack of acoustic traffic lights in Colonia, Uruguay, where I live, this simple task for most people becomes really complex, albeit not impossible for me. One day recently, I was walking on the sidewalk 
following the wall as a reference, and a way to prevent me from going into the street by mistake, while waiting carefully for the moment when the wind would hit my face and alert me that I was facing a corner. My white cane touched the step that would take me to the street, but before I could think of anything, a stranger grabbed me and carried me, practically running, to the other side. This might be shocking to some, but people trying to help me without asking me if I really need the help or how I need it is quite normal for me. Many people grab me, touch me, and try to take me to the places they believe without asking or knowing me are where I want to go. In some cases, they ask me but don't listen to me as if it were a mere courtesy and my answer is not something expected. For me, personal space, something that is often taken for granted with most people, is a concept that seems to be completely blurred. And now, in the midst of a pandemic, with a virus that spreads by proximity and physical contact, not respecting my personal space increases my risk of getting sick. My problems with stranger-imposed help is something I've been dealing with for as long as I can remember. When I was a child, I allowed myself to be helped in any way I could. I didn't care if strangers grabbed me or pushed me or tried to help me in whatever way they thought was right without stopping to think if I needed that help to begin with. In fact, rather than allowing it, it was an act of resignation. The unfounded fear of not getting help when I really needed it because I had refused it before, made me accept whatever help was imposed on me, even if it wasn't necessary or the way wasn't right. I have always been a person who speaks for herself and defends her needs in situations, but in these cases, remaining silent seemed easier. When I was born, at 26 weeks gestation, I had to spend months in an incubator to save my life, and it was the oxygen they used to save my life but also irreversibly damaged my retinas. Although things could have been much worse, my visual impairment is the only consequence I have from the situation. My parents, from a very young age, always encouraged me to be independent and to do everything for myself. When I was in primary school, because there was no state support, my mother had to learn Braille, the reading and writing system for the blind, and transcribe day by day all the things I wrote so my teachers could read them. The lack of state support, coupled with the fact that I was, and still am, one of the few blind people in my area, made things more difficult when interacting with people. The lack of awareness meant that very few people knew what blind people were capable of, which led in many cases to situations like the one I mentioned at the beginning. My reluctance, at least in the beginning, to correct people when these things happened was rooted in a fear of offending or upsetting people. I remember the exact moment when that started to change. I was outside my new high school, about to enter class. It was one of the first days, so even though I didn't know the entire facility, I knew the way to get to the place where I would meet the rest of my classmates. Almost without warning, I felt a stranger grabbing me by the shoulder, trying to get me to a place. Not like that, my mother screamed. 
who was in the car watching everything, took me by surprise. I knew grabbing me wasn't right, but until that moment I had been genuinely scared that if I set boundaries I wouldn't be helped when I needed it. This fear, in part, was instilled by society itself. The generalizations that are still made about people with disabilities made me believe that, if I denied help or explained how I really wanted to be helped, people would get a bad impression not only of me but also of other people with disabilities. That moment when my mother tired of this situation led me to explain to the person who tried to help me the way I wanted to be helped. That was life-changing for me because I found that by doing so, I not only received help the way I wanted to be helped, but I could also take control of the things that happened to me and the way people interacted with me. From that day on, it was no longer so difficult to reject or decline unwarranted help because I'm an independent person who is capable of making her own decisions. Not all the help I am offered is met with rejection on my part, though. As a visually impaired person, I know my limits, and I know that there are a variety of situations where selfless help from strangers is not only necessary, but welcomed and appreciated. From shopping in a big store to finding my way when I get lost, it is the help I receive from people I don't know that allows me to move safely in the places I go. However, there is a big difference between helping and taking someone's space or ignoring their needs and desires. If a person without a disability was grabbed in the way I was at the crosswalk that day, it would be unacceptable. But when it happened to me, the situation was considered totally normal. Just because I'm visually impaired and sometimes need help doesn't mean I'm helpless. That day on the street, many things could have been done differently. For starters, the person who was trying to help me even though he meant well, didn't stop to ask himself if I really needed that help or if I really wanted to cross that street. People tend to forget that I can speak for myself because they assume I'm totally incapable because I'm blind. I can still hear and I can still speak. The fact that this person assumed, as so many have, that because I have a disability, I am not able to do things independently shows that, even today, there are people who find it difficult to separate my disability from me as a human with my own agency and opinion. Now that we are in the midst of a global pandemic caused by a virus that has taken the lives of thousands of people around the world, this problem is no longer just personal. The way people interact with me as well as with other people, can be the difference between life and death. Even with the precautions needed because of the coronavirus, I've realized that, whether in open or closed spaces, people will still approach me and, without asking me, grab me, ignoring social distancing measures altogether, and putting themselves as well as me at risk. And it was then, at the crosswalk, that I understood that saying no and explaining my needs is not only an act of protecting my body, 
my desires and my ability to act individually, but now it's also a way to demonstrate that my health, like that of people without disabilities, matters too. Now when I go out on the street, I have to take many more precautions, and I go out much less often than before. Social distancing measures, for example, are often very difficult for me to follow. The fact that I don't see people, even that when they don't talk or make noise, I can't tell how close or how far away they are from me, and that I can't see the distance marks on the floor in stores, makes outings, if I'm not with a companion, much more complex and stressful. The fact that the virus spreads through physical contact is also a big problem because one of the senses I use most to interact with the space around me is touch. Finally, when someone does offer me help, I have no way of knowing if they are wearing a mask. Today, more than ever, it is necessary for people with disabilities to claim freedom over our bodies and, above all, over our decisions. And, Although the coronavirus has been the perfect opportunity to do so, it is also not necessary for the threat of a disease to be felt so that, once and for all, we are respected, not only as people with disabilities, but as human beings. From August 6th on Leadership comes Perkins Talks Progress and What Lies Ahead with two longtime disability advocates. A new wave of disability awareness and advocacy work is looming. Perkins sat down with two nationally recognized disability advocates for a thought-provoking conversation about the Americans with Disabilities Act on its 30th anniversary. Because Perkins is committed to preparing students for the world, and the world for our students, we are excited to have had the opportunity to organize a conversation between retired U.S. Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa, who introduced the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, in the Senate in 1988, and Perkins Ambassador Kim Charlson, who oversees the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library and its mission of providing accessible reading materials. She was also the first female president of the American Council of the Blind. Their hour-long conversation took place via Zoom, as most things do these days, covering health care, community, education, job training, employment, and accessibility. As for what advances may be on the horizon beyond driverless cars, there's no neat answer. We are living in messy times. Americans' focus should be on the long game, the two experts agreed. A new wave of disability awareness and advocacy work is looming. As it has since 1829, Perkins will be at the forefront of many of those changes. Every pillar of the ADA, from full participation to self-sufficiency, was part of the discussion. But the prevailing theme, after three decades of this law, seemed to be that people with disabilities are more independent but less satisfied because there is still more work to be done. The move away from a dependent mindset. Senator Harkin, from time immemorial, we talked about people with disabilities as having something wrong with them. But what was wrong 
was how we as society treated them. When you dismantle this type of discrimination, it helps everyone. Over the last 30 years, that has happened. There has been a real change in attitudes. More and more people understand not to define someone by their disability, but by their whole person. We are now talking about people's abilities, their hopes and dreams. We are changing the patronizing attitude of the past. That idea that people with disabilities need to be taken care of and that they don't know enough to make decisions for themselves. Kim Charlson, this rings incredibly true for me too. A mantra for me as an advocate has been that we need a seat at the table and to be part of the decision-making process. I know that if the ADA had not gone into effect, my career would have been very different. People would probably not have been open to a blind person as a librarian. But with the ADA, it was now possible, and people had the vision for what could be, and the perception and belief to allow it to happen. I saw that openness in many places. There has been so much change, in particular, the high level of expectations that people with disabilities have for themselves. In the 1990s, many people with disabilities still had low expectations because society had low expectations of their abilities. Today, people expect to have people working with them because they experienced it early in their lives. This culture shift was slow at first, but the cumulative effect of the ADA over the years has heightened awareness. Technology as an Opportunity and Danger Tom Harkin The changes in technology have done a great deal to open things up. If more and more work is being done online and from home, we want people with disabilities at the heart of that. We want both hardware and software to be accessible. The tech is getting remarkably good for text-to-speech software. Tech has opened up opportunities for rural residents to work remotely where they choose to live rather than being compelled to move to the cities. The fear I have, the danger, is that this will be a new isolation for people with disabilities as they won't be integrated into the community or have competitive integrated employment. Technology offers both a danger and an opportunity. Kim Charlson, it's a two-edged sword Tech has opened up opportunities for rural residents to get jobs in cities. But there is also that element of isolation. It puts extra responsibility on the individual to go out and make sure they are a part of society. This is difficult, especially now in the pandemic. The Power of Early Education and Role Modeling Senator Harkin We need integration at the earliest possible age. That is what breaks down the barriers. When you grow up with people who are different from you, it makes them seem part of the norm. We must continue to press for integration. That is the key to getting over prejudice and bigotry. Kim Charlson When students tour the campus and we teach them about assistive technology and inclusion, it makes a lasting impression on them. I have always been proud to be a mentor and role model for youth and adults with vision loss, and I continue to do what I can 
as the director of the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library to share information and open up opportunities for adults to reach their potential. The Devastating Effects of the Pandemic Senator Harkin One of the saddest set of numbers from COVID-19 has been the unusually high rate of deaths and infections for people with disabilities. Many of those infected were in some kind of communal living situation. There are many factors here, including pre-existing conditions and not getting information in an accessible format. This pandemic has exposed some real gaps in our communication. Public health experts have not been trained to work with people with disabilities. Also, I am really fearful because of the data that people with disabilities may not be getting tested as much as they should. Also of concern is that there is some sort of value being placed on lives by health care providers. There should be no last in line for people with disabilities. At some point, we will get over this virus as we come out of it. I don't want people with disabilities to be last in line for the jobs that become available. Kim Charlson I have a lot of pandemic-related disability examples. Most of mine are around social distancing and how hard that is for our community. I don't see the red arrows or marks on the ground at the grocery store and don't always stop. They understand but are hesitant. It makes it challenging for people who are blind to go out and do things. Access to information about the pandemic can be difficult. Also, another issue is people wearing masks in public, which they should be doing, but I have family and friends who are experiencing hearing loss, and they have serious problems communicating with people because they are not able to see people's faces. All people with disabilities' ability to communicate is impacted in some way. On the four pillars of the ADA, Senator Harkin, there were four ADA goals that we focused on. One, full participation. Two, equal opportunity. Three, independent living. Four, economic self-sufficiency. On the first three, we are doing okay, but not on the fourth. The employment numbers aren't changing, and that is my focus in my retirement, getting businesses to change. When talking to businesses, I usually start with a couple of examples. A 2019 Accenture study showed that companies that employ people with disabilities have better bottom lines than others. I also say, do your customers and your bottom line a favor and hire people with disabilities. Finding employment also has a lot to do with training. Businesses must make their training programs accessible. And transportation is an issue, too. Driverless cars are coming. We need to make sure they are accessible to all people with disabilities. We need to continue to work on transportation, hardware, and software accessibility. Kim Charlson, I agree, and my experience shows that because it is so hard to get a job as a person with a disability, that there is a tendency to stay and do your best for the employer. Someone with a disability often gives extra loyalty. This can 
motivate the employer to hire more people with disabilities. Of my 30 staff at Perkins, 11 of them have a disability. Just wanting to live a normal life. Senator Harkin, things are changing for the better, like the buildings and access. But what I think is most important is the change in attitude. Because of this younger ADA generation, people are more integrated and more understanding. A lot of the old myths have gone away. I remember talking in the late 80s to a young woman with CP, cerebral palsy. I was going on and on, and she listened, and she said, That's all good, but all I really want to do is be able to go out and buy a pair of shoes. A person with a disability just wants to live a normal life. Posted on August 4 is the article from Forbes, Five Ways to Avoid an Accessibility Fail. Posted on Forbes.com Are inaccessible buildings really all that much of a problem next to some of the other problems disabled people face? No and yes. For comparison, only about 19% of people with disabilities in the U.S. have a job. The poverty rate for Americans with disabilities is about double the rate for non-disabled people, and the gap has narrowed only slightly over the last 10 years. One-third to one-half of people killed by police in recent years have had some kind of disability. Preliminary data from April 2020 suggested that about 27% of the total deaths from COVID-19 in the U.S. were people with disabilities in long-term congregate care homes. We don't know yet how many disabled people have died from COVID-19, in part because of discriminatory treatment policies that explicitly disadvantage disabled people, but we know about some specific losses, like Michael Hickson, a black man with traumatic brain injury who was denied treatment for COVID-19 over the strong objections of his wife. Alongside these and other dire conditions and dangers, not having a complete choice of restaurants or being blocked by steps from shopping in a vintage record store may seem trivial, and in terms of sheer suffering and immediate consequences, maybe they are less important. But lack of complete accessibility affects far more than recreational shopping and dining, and is still one of the key barriers that hold disabled people back in modern American life. To start with, for disabled people, inaccessibility is discrimination. This is one of the core insights of the disability rights movement. With disability, it's not enough to want or intend to do right. Your feelings about disabled people aren't much help. You have to do actual things to ensure disabled people have equal access and opportunity. Sometimes you have to change familiar practices. You may have to do more for a disabled person in order to treat them equally. And you may have to make physical changes to your buildings and facilities in order to ensure your door really is open to disabled people. 
both literally and figuratively. One isolated instance of poor access may not be that harmful by itself, but restrictions on disabled people's mobility and choices are cumulative, and they infect every part of our lives. The problem isn't not being able to go into one restaurant on one day. It's all of the spaces we've been excluded from purely by their physical design and by owners and managers who are unwilling or uninterested in fixing the problem. It's never really knowing what will and won't be accessible to your particular type of disability. It's having to revise and re-revise your daily plans at a moment's notice. It's watching the dominoes of your carefully arranged plans and coping techniques topple one after another, triggered by a single step or a door that's an inch too narrow. It's all of these things happening week after week, month after month, year after year. It's also knowing that compared to all of the life and death problems disabled people face, accessibility is usually much easier to fix. Yet so much of it isn't. Thirty years after passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, any person, business, organization, or government department offering services to the public should at least know whether their facilities and programs are accessible, which means knowing exactly how they are and are not accessible. Barriers are bad enough, but most disabled people will tell you that one thing worse than inaccessibility itself is the unique and exquisite torture of being misled or misinformed about accessibility, of expecting accessibility and being assured of it, and then finding it lacking. Let's call it the accessibility fail. The accessibility fail is even easier to avoid than poor accessibility itself. It is entirely caused by negligence and inattention, often in tandem with genuine but paper-thin good intentions. You want to be accessible. You're a good person. Your organization is good, and accessibility is good. So, your place and program must be accessible. We're accessible, aren't we? But are you? Here are five ways to avoid the uniquely painful accessibility fail. 1. Don't say your place is accessible when it really isn't. No steps don't necessarily mean your place is accessible. There's more to it than that. There's parking, the pathway to your door, mobility inside your facility, and whether your information and activities are accessible to people, a wide spectrum of disabilities. Knowing what is and isn't accessible is important because disabled people who ask about it rely on your answer being accurate and complete. Make a list or prepare a script to accurately describe what is and isn't accessible. That way you and your employees are always ready to give accurate practical information on what a disabled person can actually expect so they can make sensible choices and plans. A good place to start is the ADA checklist for existing facilities. 2. Don't provide just enough accessibility to get a disabled person stuck. If you can get through the door but not move around inside, it's a problem. 
and the disabled person won't know exactly what kind of a problem until they are actually in it. If you can eat and drink, but can't use the restroom, it's a problem. It's humiliating, physically uncomfortable, and it usually becomes a problem only after it's too late to do anything about it. Being stuck in these ways is annoying and exhausting at best. At worst, it could be dangerous. If you can start down a path but run into a barrier you can't get around, it's a problem. Imagine using a properly designed curb ramp to get onto a sidewalk in a wheelchair, only to find later that there's no way to get to the next pathway because there's no ramp, or worse, because the ramp is built wrong or crumbling. You either have to backtrack to the last ramp or rethink your entire route, or risking being stuck or injured by forging ahead. There's not a wheelchair user alive who hasn't either tipped over or needed help to get out of a situation caused by a partial, incomplete, or poorly maintained accessibility. 3. Don't forget communication access. One of the most common problems in disability culture is the lack of true recognition that disabled includes people who don't use wheelchairs or mobility aids, and those disabilities aren't obvious to the casual observer. Deaf and hearing impaired people need options for understanding voice and audio content. In simple interactions, it may be possible to muddle through with lip reading, written notes, and mutual patience. But for the complex legal, financial, or medical matters, sign language interpreting may be required, and service providers in such fields should be ready to provide it in a reasonably timely manner. Blind and visually impaired people need options for getting any printed information offered to the public. This can include large print, braille, and audio recordings, or reading signs and brief written materials to customers. Note that both hearing and visually impaired people usually know which accommodations work best for them in different situations, and it's best to just follow their lead whenever possible. People who are unable to speak will most likely also have their own preferred tools for communication, which mainly call on patience and disciplined listening. Others may use electronic speech devices. Be careful not to dismiss people with speech impairments or rush through serving them because you're uncomfortable. Make a real effort to make your information and procedures cognitive accessible. Cognitive accessibility means making written materials and other forms of communication accessible to people with intellectual disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, learning disabilities, mental illness, and other impairments that can affect how people process information. One of the core elements of cognitive accessibility is writing in plain language. That doesn't mean making your ideas simple or leaving information out. It means writing in a direct, easily digested way with fewer specialized terms and less use of abstract metaphors. It's not an easy skill to master, but it's worth your attention and there may be more resources in the near future as cognitive accessibility becomes a higher priority. For help with communication accessibility, review the ADA requirements for effective communication. 4. 
Don't invest time and money in a cool new website that's not accessible. In a website, accessibility means a couple of different things. The main requirement is that people using adaptive software need to be able to navigate and read your site fully and accurately. This calls for a number of technical components, most notably a simpler overall structure with fewer frames, tables, and moving parts. If your website has a lot of automatic motion, sound, graphics, menus, and different sections on the same page, accessibility may be a problem. At the very least, it's worth digging deeper into finding out if there is a problem. One of the most important and easy requirements to meet is that graphics must include alt text. That is, a written description of the picture that screen readers can announce to visually impaired visitors. Videos and live audio events need to include accurate captions and or sign language interpreting. It's also a good practice for live presenters to describe themselves for people with visual impairments. Don't post text as a graphic. For example, if you want to display a restaurant menu, type it in. Don't just take a photo of the menu and post it because screen readers will see it as a picture and not read it out the text. Finally, stay away from flashing lights, wild color contrasts, and overly fancy fonts. Your site doesn't have to be dull, but too many bells and whistles tend to create unanticipated problems for some visitors, like flashing lights that can trigger seizures in people with epilepsy or sensory overload for some autistic people. Whether you hire a web designer or use a do-it-yourself web page application, be sure to flesh out carefully whether they fully understand and implement accessible design. As with other areas of accessibility, it's easy to say your web design is accessible when it really isn't, and if at all possible, ask some visually and cognitively impaired people to give you feedback on your site and any changes you make to it and be prepared to pay them for this valuable help. 5. Don't be defensive, procrastinate, or pass the buck in response to complaints. Whoever receives complaints in your organization should be polite, not defensive, and receptive to feedback. Don't try to explain why you're not accessible, and certainly don't try to argue the point. Next, resolve to actually do something in response to complaints and follow through. It's been said a thousand times recently, but it's worth repeating. The Americans with Disabilities Act has been around for 30 years. Nobody needs more time to comply. Obviously, fixing an accessibility problem is going to take some time. The point is to get on it and don't procrastinate. One more piece of advice. There are consultants to help organizations improve accessibility, but most of what you need to know is available for free on the government's own ADA websites. And you should also check with your nearest Center for Independent Living. They have disabled people who know about accessibility, both as technical experts and from personal experience. Listen to what they have to say and take it seriously. Accessibility fails are avoidable, but it takes work. Crossing your fingers 
and hoping nobody notices won't do it. Page 3. This story was posted on CNN on Sunday, August 16. A missing mother and her one-year-old baby were found after a very good boy named Max discovered them on the edge of a ravine. It was newly licensed police dog Max's first day on the job with the Dyfed Powys Department in Wales when the dog and its handler, P.C. Peter Lloyd, began their search for the two missing people. Quote, the woman had not been seen or spoken to for two days, which was out of character, and her phone wasn't working, so naturally concern for her safety was high, Inspector Jonathan Reese jones said in a statement. Thanks to the excellent work between teams, the woman's car was quickly found on a mountain road. Although this gave officers a location to search from, there was still a vast area to cover, given the amount of time she had been missed. End of quote. That's when Max's tracking skills came to the rescue. Guided by Max, and after 90 minutes of searching, Lloyd spotted the missing woman waving for help on the side of a mountain near a steep ravine, Reese Jones said. The two were found safe, but cold, and are believed to have been in the area for a long time. Quote, I was really pleased that during our first operational deployment of a dog team, myself and Max were able to safely locate the missing mother and baby, Lloyd said in a statement. Max remained focused throughout the long search, and he proved invaluable when he reacted to the call for help, which resulted in us locating them. End of quote. This was also Lloyd's first shift with Max since joining the Dyfed Powys Police Dog Section in February. Max, a general-purpose dog, will be used by the force to track and locate people, find abandoned property, and locate suspects. This article was posted on the GDUI list by Maria Hansen on August 7th, but was originally published several years ago. And it's entitled, Blind Revolution, Not a Bit Amusing. The following article is quite tongue-in-cheek, rather amusing. I've heard of robots taking over the world, but the blind? Citizens, hear us well. Our great nation is being undermined by a secret society of individuals who carry deadly white truncheons and lead vicious attack animals in public on a daily basis. These mysterious folk also have a secret means of communication, while shocking new evidence seems to indicate that they may even possess senses superior to those of other humans. We're speaking, of course, of the legions of the so-called blind. Let's assume for a minute that we swallow this blindness hoax in the first place. If these people are somehow bereft of the gift of sight, how does that explain the works of Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and Ronnie Millsap? How could such men possibly play music if they are blind? What do they take us for? Ignorant saps? The first issue I must point out is their very public display of armed might. Every individual laying claim to sightlessness carries a cudgel on their person at all times. These canes, as they call them, are supposed to help them feel their way along. 
They are painted white, almost as if the bearer wished to remind passers-by of its presence, and the weapon's tip is painted a chilling, suggestive red. Those who have studied the mysterious fighting arts of the Orient know that such sticks may be wielded with deadly force by those with skill. In a surprise attack, strategically placed squads of the blind could quickly overwhelm our police forces. Their fearsome nature encompasses more than just personal weaponry. Many of the alleged blind also own large, vicious attack dogs of the for the supposed purpose of guidance along city streets. With one word from their scheming masters, these slavering guide dogs could become guided missiles. Indeed, most of these fearsome beasts are German shepherds, a species of killer wolf invented by twisted fascist dog breeders, which has somehow fallen into this most suspect faction of the disabled. The most frightening aspect of this diabolical conspiracy is by far their ability to communicate with one another unbeknownst to upstanding citizens. Their secret code consists of a series of raised dots cunningly arranged into arcane shapes. Known as Braille, this demonic alphabet has begun popping up in places that were doubtlessly chosen for their mundane, everyday, outward appearance. Elevators, building directories, automated teller machines, and the like. This system seems rational enough and does not attract undue attention. But think, if the messages on the signs change suddenly, how would we know? Next year, next month, next week, maybe even tomorrow, the signs will change from second floor to strike now, strike hard, and our nation will be thrown into the chaos of revolution. At this juncture, there is no hard evidence that the blind are planning such a revolution. We hope to have evidence very soon. But can one group possess such an overwhelming element of surprise and fail to use it to seize power? And can their goals be anything but evil? No, I say. I maintain that true blindness lies in failing to see the threat where it must obviously lie, and we must be vigilant and wary of the blind menace. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.